0: This is Tau Unbound, the English-language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aharoni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer,
1: and veteran diplomat.
0: Welcome to Tau Unbound, the English-language podcast of Tel Aviv University. I'm your host, Ido Aharoni, and today I'm so pleased to host someone that I know personally, Professor Udi Zomer. Welcome to our show.
1: A pleasure to be here.
0: So we met uh, just before you came to America. You spent some years at Columbia University where you were involved with uh, establishing some cyber platform. You'll tell us about it. Yeah. Uh, your field of expertise is U.S.-Israel ties. Your academic background is psychology. You're teaching political science. And you're also the chairman of the Young Academy of Israel. Before we begin, tell us, what is the Young Academy of Israel?
1: So I was chairperson until 2019 of the Young Academy. And it's uh, an organization that is 10 years old, exactly. We just celebrated a decade. And the idea is to take the outstanding, some of the outstanding young academics in Israel who also care about Israeli society and uh, have them work for the society on top of their great uh, research and scientific endeavors.
0: So you're not limited to any particular academic area. You just
1: on the contrary, on the contrary, we take people we uh, you know selected into the Israeli Young Academy are outstanding researchers from all disciplines, uh, from all walks of uh, Israeli society. So the idea is to have uh, a diverse uh, a diverse uh, group that can work uh, to benefit Israel uh, in various at various levels. You know, both both the academic uh, the academic realm and you know young researchers in the academic realm, but as well as society writ large, uh, and you know. Probably we don't have, we can do another podcast about the Israeli Young Academy and, and its achievements. But uh, after 10 years, I think we, uh, uh, we definitely uh, justified the existence of this, uh, of this young organization.
0: Excellent. And uh, before we again jump into this, the subject matter, we, we'd like to talk about US Israel ties today, especially in light of the elections in Israel and the midterm elections in the United States. Um, I noticed in your biography a very curious detail. It says in there, that you also write poetry, which I I find to be very compelling. And the question I have for you is, I remember as a young, and there's a a considerable age difference between us, but when I went to school here in Israel, we studied English language poetry. I don't remember any emphasis on American poetry, contemporary American poetry. And I wanted to ask you as a poet, uh, what would you like to see happening in the Israeli educational system when it comes to the study of
1: poetry? Okay, that's a question I didn't prepare for. Uh, I think I think that uh, the best thing that could happen is for, uh, and right now it's really really off the top of my head, is to help uh, uh, young students in the in the in the in school. Uh, relate at the personal level to poetry. Because poetry, you know, if you read something that doesn't touch you, then it's something that it's very hard to understand. Poetry is hard to understand, right? It's hard to write, it's hard to understand. But if something that touches you the right way, then you can really connect and relate to it. And it's something that would maybe, it will surely make you read more poetry and maybe even write some at some point. Uh, And I think this is something that we are still, uh, uh, we still have ways to go in terms of helping students find the the poetry that touches them in the right places, in the right place, at the right time.
0: What poetry touched you, for example, when you were young?
1: Uh, I think, you know, the one that influenced me the most was Nathan Zach, by far. Uh, you know, after a while, I felt like I can rebel against Nathan Zach, but I think he's uh, uh, both the the, the the melody in his rhymes, but also just the, uh, the, the insights and the sensitivity uh, and the kind of very uh, a unique uh, way to describe certain experiences and certain uh, uh, certain aspects of reality that really touched me.
0: That's fascinating. I think we should have a separate podcast just about poetry. Um, and uh, but that's an, a beautiful segue to uh, what I'd like to talk about today. And um, the first thing I wanted to ask you is that you know we usually measure the quality of ties between Israel and the United States on the policy level. I like the fact that you come from psychology that you also have the bread the the, the bandwidth to write poetry so you, you you're not a typical political scientist if I may say so whatever if, if such a thing exists And I wanted to ask you um, are we doing an injustice to the system when we only measure the quality of the ties? based on policy decisions, or there's something bigger to consider here?
1: I think there is certainly something bigger in the sense that there are you know cultural ties and there is a, a sense of even, I would say a common destiny uh, for uh, that, that Americans and Israelis feel. Not just you know they always talk about the, the the generation after the foundation of the state of Israel where Americans were fascinated by this new uh, miracle and you know Americans who are I guess baby boomers uh, who still think of Israel that way and the argument is that for young people in America for younger generations it's not the same uh, the same thing I don't I don't feel that way you know when I when I uh, even when I look at the big picture but certainly when I talk to uh, uh, I, you know speak at universities or in any public engagements in America or speak to individuals. I feel that the that there is so much in common uh, in terms of the, uh, the I would, you know, it sounds a little pompous, but, you know, the, the destiny of those two peoples and the kind of alliance that is the the, the deep uh, roots of that alliance that I think it's way beyond uh, uh, policy. And that's, you know, that's also important to remember. You know, policy is something, you know, there's the, the ebb and flow of politics, you know, who's in charge there, who's in charge here, who, uh, who has the administration. And, and there's things that are definitely, you know, deeper than that.
0: So, shared. Destiny or shared values—that's one pillar. What are the other main pillars you would say are the the foundation of the of the ties between Israel and the United States?
1: I think the commitment to democracy, is something that is very strong in both countries, and it's you know it's challenging in both countries. America, you know, you look at the American hist- American history throughout history, and certainly uh, uh, if you look at the recent uh, you know four or five years uh, with Trump, there were serious challenges with uh, with how you uh, protect democracy and uh, how you not just protect it, but also allow it to not just to survive, but also to thrive. Uh, and, you know, in Israel, this is a topic that we uh, deal with on a daily basis uh, since the foundation, or maybe even before the foundation of the state, but certainly uh, uh, certainly uh, uh, and since ever and in recent years where, you know, there are real challenges to how you protect the Israeli democracy. You know, if we talk about the most recent elections, you know, the uh, uh, some of the, of the members of the current coalition, are their perspective on certain institutions within democracy, specifically the courts and the Supreme Court, uh, is different than what has been the case. So, so let's,
0: let's, let's uh, spend a moment on this issue of the, f- the fragile nature of American democracy uh, versus Israeli democracy. The U.S. democracy has the advantage of it stems from a very clear, you know, formative defining document known as the Constitution. Israel doesn't have a constitution. In fact, we're not even sure uh, wh- what are the roots of Israeli democracy, where it's coming from. Uh, there's a debate of, about the roots of, of Israeli democracy, where it's coming from. Why we're why we are a democracy, and um, and I, I I'm fascinated to hear your view. Um, I know that Professor Shlomo Avineri thinks that the origin of Israeli democracy is actually from. Uh, the Jewish way of life in the communities in the diaspora. It has nothing to do with Jewish tradition. It has nothing to do with the political traditions of Eastern Europe. It has everything to do with Jewish life.
1: Uh, I think if you even look at the proclamation, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure about, you know, if it's exactly the same argument, but if you even look at the proclamation of independence of Israel, the argument is that this, uh, the, the democratic principles not only steam from the, the, the league of the, the world of uh, nations, the international, uh, uh, from inter- ideas coming from overseas, but also are, their roots are found in the, uh, in the teachings of, uh, of Judaism. So, uh, yeah, I agree with that. But I think, you know, but beyond that, at, at this point, I think that, uh, uh, it's not just the roots, but it's also where Israeli democracy is going. Okay, so uh, the understanding of democracy as something that is mostly procedural, that is based on elections and where the uh, the will of the majority is the should should uh, should be the uh, the major, uh, the most important element is some is, is one perspective on democracy. But a perspective that thinks about liberal democracy argues that the strength of democracy and the the ability of democracy to protect its minorities is something that is part and parcel of being a democratic nation so it's not just about procedures it's not just about who wins the elections it's not just about majority rule but it's also about being able to protect minorities and i think there's also a jewish origin to many of those ideas and that's, you know, and this is where the Supreme Court comes into, uh, into play, right, because the institution by construction, and this is true, I think, in, well, certainly in America, in the U.S., but uh, in America and in Israel, I mean, and probably uh, in many other countries, or surely in many other countries, the idea of the Supreme Court is to be able to, uh, at some point, you know, uh, limit the will of the majority and say that uh, there are certain protections for individual rights and for the rights of minority groups that uh, are are essential for democracy to survive as a democracy. And if those are taken away, then the very nature of democracy uh, may change and may even uh, not. I don't know I wouldn't say evaporate necessarily, but uh, uh, certainly a fundamental change uh, if you take away those powers of the court.
0: It will be structurally weakened uh, if, if those things will happen.
1: Well, I would even say morally. Uh, weekend, right? I mean, if you are, if you're you a, a real, you're, you know, the, uh, I guess a real uh, indication for the strength of a nation is its ability to protect the weak. And that's the again, way, a Jewish idea.
0: I must say as an observer uh, who observed the execution of US policy, foreign policy over the years, uh, the view of American democracy as a procedural thing. It crosses political boundaries. Um, it has uh, a lot to do, I think, with the emphasis on elections. I mean uh, the the united states um basically pushed us and the palestinians to uh, back in 2005 2006 to hold democratic elections in gaza and we ended up with with hamas same thing happened in egypt we ended up with the the muslim brotherhood and so on so um what are the other dangers that u.s democracy is facing today so you say one is the narrow view that it's only about elections. So it's an emphasis on the procedure, not so much on the value system that comes with it. What else do you think is threatening the U.S. democracy?
1: Okay, so so let me say something about, you know, one threat and one uh, aspect that I think, you know, indicates a strength of the democracy. So in terms of threat, I think uh, a major threat is polarization. Okay, and when we get to talk about the midterms later, I think that there might be some surprises there, but the idea of polarization, of, you know, of depolarization, that is both ideological, right? When people perceive uh, 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 policy pres- preferences in very different way, people have very different policy preferences about should be done with anything from the economy to immigration to uh, abortions, but also uh, emotional uh, polarization. The fact that people feel negative emotions towards people on the other side, people feel disgusted, people feel afraid, people feel that they're threatened by the other side. This kind of polarization, you know, at the end of the day, for democracy to work, there's always uh, uh, factions, right? There's always political parties that are, you know, that have opposing views and opposing positions on various things. But there should be enough in common. People feel should feel, you know, people and entities and political uh, uh, elements within the system should feel that there is enough uh, uh, common interest for the system for the institutions to survive. When there is uh, uh, when polarization reaches a certain point, this common uh, common ground. May not be sufficient, right? And then you see things like you saw on January 6, 2021, uh, last year, where uh, the sense was that the institutions of American democracy, the very institutions, right? Congress, the peaceful transfer of power, all those things are not as important as holding on to power. Uh, because the people, why? Because the people on the other side are so dangerous scary uh, uh uh threatening to the very survival of the nation that it's better to maybe maybe even do away with certain institutions of democracy as long as you keep power so i think this is one threat but going back to the same uh, to the same uh, event of january 6 2021 uh you know you talked about, about you talked about the fragility of american democracy earlier and in my view this is actually an indication for how strong democracy is in america okay you, so you saw uh first of all you know, it didn't. Uh, it didn't work, right? I mean, the, uh, the the peaceful transfer of power did take place, right? The most. This is if you if you ask me, what is the number one most important institution in a democracy? It is a peaceful transfer of power, because it's unintuitive, right? One faction, one party loses elections, right? 1800 in America, right? One party loses election for the first time in history. Why should Adams give the power to Jefferson, right? It has never. It had never happened. He doesn't trust the guy. He uh, uh, he wants to hold on to power, but it does happen, okay. And since then, it has happened, uh, including in 2021. Uh, but you know, this is the number one no, number one criterion for whether a democracy is a democracy.
0: Also, here it's not something that we take for Absolutely. granted. Absolutely, uh, I Remember, Shamir was afraid that uh, Paris will uh, transfer power during the national unity government of 84 to 88.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of talk. You know, when, when Netanyahu had to uh, pass power to uh, to Bennett uh, last year. Last year was it? Uh, that, you know, that it might not happen. So it didn't happen in the most, you know, uh, smooth of ways, but still, you know, it did happen and uh, there was a peaceful transfer of power. And this is, I think this is the number one indication for the strength of democracy and it did happen in America. And not only did it happen, but if you look at the outcomes of the midterm elections uh, earlier this week, you see how every single uh, candidate who was, uh, uh, not every single candidate who was an election denier uh, lost, some of them did win, but any single, every single one who was a candidate for a position within the state that would be determine the outcome of the election, such as, you know, the Secretary of State in Arizona and elsewhere, these people lost. So, for and, and this indicates that not only at the level of institutions did power transfer peacefully, but also at the level of the individual voters in America, they so, care about democracy.
0: So that, that brings up a very important question. In your assessment, would you say that the Trump phenomenon has played itself out or we are going to see more uh displays or representations of it even if not by trump himself
1: i think it's not over i think it's not over if you just look at the numbers you know the. Uh... The percent of uh, Republicans who still believe that the elections are, uh, were stolen, that the 2020 elections were stolen, are depending on the survey, but it's you know, 50 to 75 percent. So, you know, if you had, uh, what, 70 million uh, people voting for Trump, so even half of this, it's 35 million people. They're not going away. Uh, one of my favorite activities when I'm in America is to go to the uh, the gym in the hotel where I'm staying and have, you know, in the gyms in America, you have those several screens and have one screen on Fox News and another one on, on, uh, on uh, any of the alternatives. And just look at the two uh, alternative realities, right, that, that Americans are exposed to, uh, depending on the, on the, on the uh, channel that they view or that they follow or, you know, whatever social media they, they, uh, they follow. And you can see that, you know, those, you know, on, on, the, on, the, on the side of, of uh, Fox News and some of the, uh, and many of the, of the, of the websites and, and social media fields, feeds, et cetera, you can see that people are deeply uh, convinced that this is the case, even for the current elections, that you have all sorts of uh, videos, et cetera, showing that that is happening. So by I don't the, think by it's By the going way,
0: on. I must say that in the days before the elections, I was in the United States, um, the buildup that we're going to have a massive red wave was uh, across the board. So it was the perceived conservative media and the perceived liberal media. Both were cultivating this narrative. Why do you think it didn't happen?
1: I think there's. Uh, I knew this question was coming. I don't think we still have definite answers for that. Okay, but let, let me give you a few, you know, initial uh, uh, intuitions. Okay, some of them are even even based in data. But I think one thing is uh, is uh, the 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 endorsements that Trump made. Okay, some of the endorsements were people that uh, were evaluated by the voters as unreliable, as incapable, as not fit for the job, so they didn't vote for them. It's too it's too extreme ideologically, right? If you, the fact that you can carry the day in a, in the Republican primary doesn't necessarily mean that you can uh, get the uh, the votes of the majority so, of voters. So Dr. So
0: Oz is an example of that.
1: Yeah, Dr. Oz is an example, although I, yeah, yeah but Dr. Oz is, is a good example. I think, you know, Kerry Lake is a very interesting case it's not you know it's still a uh, it's still a toss up but you know we'll see what happens there but if she loses i think this is the the number one indication that uh, uh that the Trump uh, the, the Trump endorsements uh not only did they did they not work they actually you know scared people away so that's that's i think this by, i think is one by the wonderful.
0: time this podcast will air we will know okay uh what happened with Herschel Walker and we will know what happened with uh, Kerry Lake even
1: Herschel Walker so we're yeah. airing after december okay yeah. so uh okay we'll have time okay uh, so that's one thing, I think. Another thing that, you know, people talked a lot about in the early summer and then it kind of disappeared, but not... Disappeared in the, you know, in the maybe in talk shows and on social media and maybe even in the surveys, but didn't disappear in the hearts and minds of voters is Dobbs, okay? Uh, I think the, the decision of the Supreme Court had, uh, you know, resonated very strongly with women in America, not all women. It's usually, you know, women between the ages of 20 and 30 were... 60 percent of abortions in America are of people within this uh, age bracket uh, and uh, people women who are you know Democrats, women who are uh, 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 liberals, so women who are you know, it's not the most activist women because they were already registered to vote and they were going to uh, vote Democrat anyway. But it's, those, we, it's those, we, those women who are less interested in politics maybe and, you know, they're very busy. They have, you know, uh, people, uh, women in the, in the suburbs, uh, what be some, sometimes are called soccer moms, although there's some talk about changing this, uh, 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 this uh, phrase because it doesn't really represent any cohesive uh, group, but maybe we'll talk about that later. But, you know, those women were, were mobilized to vote and uh, and they felt that you know this is something that really touches touches home right i mean that at the end of the day uh i don't remember the exact statistics but a good a good number of america of uh, women in america get an abortion at some point in their life in their Mm -hmm. lifetime so uh and the, the vast majority of abortions by the way are a part of family planning in the sense that women who already have kids get them so so these are uh, uh, these are people who, uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't just happen to them something, you know, people who are uh, at the uh, on the outskirts of society, but it's people who uh, who want to have, a, who, who feel that Dobbs really influenced their life in a very profound way. And the fact that uh, uh, the constitutional right to privacy was taken away from them, motivated them, raged them, you know, created, created enough rage, uh, frustration to actually vote. And I think that had a, had a major influence so much so that it even uh, we had we saw a clear override of a of a you know party with a president who's extremely unpopular Uh, i think he's at the same level as trump more or less at this point in his presidency with an economy you know we know what what the inflation numbers are you know how much it costs to uh, fill up a um, a, a tank of gasoline in your car in uh, some states in america Uh, we have an energy crisis because of ukraine and so you know despite of all those things inflation Inflation, right, in spite of all those things, you know, you know, it's the economy, stupid, right? The economy is supposed to be a, to have such an overriding effect in America. And despite all those things, I think Dobbs... Uh, so in, in that sense, I think social issues uh, were at least as important as the economy in these elections.
0: All right. And, and, and I agree with that analysis. And I think that um, I'd like to take you back to the question of, about Trumpism. So you say it's here to stay, even if it's only... 30, 40 million voters is still a considerable. Now, what would you say is the role of technology in this uh, uh, polarization that we see? In how can... uh, Somewhere I read that there were 300 candidates in the United States elections that were...
1: Election deniers.
0: Election deniers. How could that happen? And what is the impact of technology on this?
1: Oh, technology. I thought acknowledging. Um... Technology, technology has a huge influence, you know, uh, in the sense that, uh, uh, first of all, the 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 you know, there's a few things. One thing is that the standard media, which used to be the intermediate between the voters and or the citizens and the uh, and their leaders and their elected officials. Uh, is not necessarily as important anymore, right? I mean, as we said, people watch their specific uh, uh, TV channel, but at the end of the day, they get their information directly from their uh, from the elected officials, right? So there's no this kind of intermediary uh, is gone. Beyond that, I think that you know when people uh, look at their feed and they live within their echo chamber, they get the sense that. Uh, uh, First of all, everybody thinks the same way, or everybody that they know anyway, and uh, all sorts of inconsistencies, uh, all sorts, consor- all sorts of half truths or even complete lies—what uh, uh, we call fake news or fake reality uh, uh, or deep fake or all those things—you know—they they they, they uh, take a hold because people feel that you know this is wherever I go on my Facebook or on my Twitter feed or on my uh, TikTok or on my Instagram, I see the same thing, so it must be true. Okay, so. So I think that had a lot to do with that that being said i think there's a a silver lining here when it comes to because po- because this would generate you know polarization at levels that are unprecedented right you would you would say you know but i think a silver lining here or maybe even more than a silver lining is the fact that is the split votes that you saw in many states okay and why do i think that split votes are so important because at the end of the day what is polarization so we talked about ideological polarization people Think about policies in very different ways, right? There is emotional polarization that people uh, uh, or affective polarization. People feel emotions that are negative towards the other side. But at the end of the day, polarization would really hurt uh, 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 the democ- democracy. And this is this comes from the founding fathers. That's not my idea. If people don't are unable to come together and act in any joint fashion, right? Mm-hmm. So, for instance, uh, if you're, what would be an, a way in which people are, you know? Behave politically in a way that over uh, overcomes polarization, overcomes the the gaps. Is if people are willing, for instance, to switch from one party to the other, and we saw that happening, right? Federman gets uh, uh, wins red uh, counties in Pennsylvania, just like DeSantis, by the way, wins blue counties in Florida. So in that uh, in that way, you know, I, I'm not taking sides here, whether DeSantis or Federman, whether Republicans or Democrats, but the fact that voters were willing to switch to the other side. Is actually a very uh, positive indication for where American democracy is. And just the last point about ticket splitting—that's the same thing, right? The, pe- the fact that people are able to uh, cast a vote for a Republican governor but for a Democratic uh, uh, member uh, candidate for the Senate means that they can see both, you know, uh, um, 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 upsides in the positions of both parties, and that's a very good thing for a democracy.
0: Now you said something that is very, very important. Um, the this, you know the willingness of people to switch sides sides is is apparent right and you gave a few examples that I think are fascinating and I'd be curious to hear about your opinion about Fetterman uh, was it the compassion factor there that that drove people to vote for him maybe the decision that was you know previously viewed as a miserable decision to attend to show up for the debate actually worked in his favor. Because people said, you know what? I feel good about myself voting for someone who's recovering from a stroke. Um, That's a a different issue. But I wanted to ask you about the two-party system. So what you're telling me is actually that the two-party system is gradually becoming more and more fragile. Right? If Donald Trump decides to form his own party, if he doesn't win the Republican nomination, which I think he won't, and he decides to win to, to to form his own party because he can't live with the rejection and that could be the end of the two-party system
1: um it might be a temporary uh change in uh political circumstances or i would say rather than you know the end because you know trump is not there forever so i i what you're what you're describing is possible although, although i'm not sure he's going to lose but you know you know, the prophecy was given to the fools anyway, so we might not go there. But uh, uh, but the uh, but I think you know that that, that he might. I, I think I think you're right. He might create some sort of a. What we would call the in politics a secessionist movement, right? He would, you know, uh, break away from from the Republican Party and create his own party when they let the Republicans go with uh, DeSantis. But uh, uh, but even if that happens, you know, and he loses, which you know he he would lose because third parties in America never win; it's impossible to uh, for that to happen. And not only does he not win, but he lands Democrat Democrats a landslide victory in twenty twenty four. That's the end of his political career. And uh, if that is the case, many of the Republicans that followed him would go back to. Uh, to, uh, to the Republican Party. But, you know, this is, again, it's very, you know, it's, it's conjecture, it's a, very it's hypothetical. A, yeah, so.
0: it's, it's, it's a speculation. Now, I wanted to shift this to Israel for a little bit. So you spoke about the strength of, of American democracy as, and also its, its weaknesses. And um, the question is, given what we know about the way Israelis, I would describe it, the a transactional fashion, uh, which is a typical... Israeli way to look at the relationship, right? Israel views the relationship with the United States through only one very narrow prism, which is security. Uh, would you say that we're missing something here? Because we, what you're describing is a deep social and cultural change infused and, and accelerated by technology. And do you feel that the Israelis are aware of it? Or the what, what do you think is happening in Israel? What, where do they think? That U.S.-Israel ties are heading.
1: Um, so I guess I guess in Israel there's a there's a, a some sort of a, of a difference between the the elites between the decision makers and their perspective on that, and between the uh, the general public and even within the general public there's also uh, there's probably much variance. But uh, I think that uh, uh, if you ask you know people of younger generations who actually are on social media a lot and most of what they see is American content they are right on top of that right I mean they they completely understand the undercurrents in American society the the rising of uh, the rise of uh, you know certain minority groups the the uh, the um, the fact that you know decisions like Dobbs are unthinkable to people who are their the same age in America uh, and uh, so in that sense I think they they are very much in tune with what uh, what with understanding what's happening in America. It's not necessarily that you know, the, the the currents here are exactly the same, but you're asking about whether they 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 they, uh, they perceive what's happening in America and understand it. I think they they do. At the at the level of decision makers, um, I think that you know the expect there was a sense for a few years with Trump, right? That uh, there was a sense of of comfort almost, right? I mean, we had somebody who was in the White House that was so friendly in a way that. I don't think you can describe any of them i don't want to get into you know uh, swiping general generalizations here but hardly think of any president that was so friendly so friendly in the sense that sometimes you get you got the sense that ideas about what should be done with Israel on the American side were provided by the Israelis uh, 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 so so Trump got ideas about what should be uh, what should happen in the Golan Heights or with the Israeli uh, US embassy in Israel etc uh, got those ideas not from the State Department or from his uh, advisors but from his uh, 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 close uh, ties with uh, with the uh, ties with Israeli uh, with the leaders in Israel uh, and that sense of comfort I think is uh, is gone I, you know I, I don't see uh, Uh, I don't see that. uh, It's certainly not there with uh, with Biden, especially given that, uh, you know, you saw the way the the the, I would say the aloof, uh, uh, the aloof uh, reaction of the Biden administration to the results of the elections here uh, two weeks ago. Uh, But maybe even in general, you know, I don't see anybody Trump. You know, it's, again, it's a little too early to say, but Trump might might, might have been an aberration in American uh, in American history, right? Uh, both in terms of what happens in domestic, you know, domestically, but but certainly in the way he handled, in, you know, the foreign uh, foreign policy and uh, and specifically with respect to Israel, the ties that you had between Trump and the closeness that you had between Trump and Netanyahu is something that uh, I you know I don't see that uh, uh, repeating itself in the in the near future.
0: Well, you know, I can spend hours discussing this with you, uh, but I really would like to end with the night a is one still general. still young,
1: so uh, yeah, gonna...
0: we well, our time is up. We we try to um, to limit ourselves to about thirty minutes so that you know our audience uh, you know remains with us doesn't doesn't go to other channels. But I wanted to end this with a very general question, and I'm sure you're the the right person to answer the question. Where do you see the relations between Israel and the United States? in in the in the future uh we, we don't have to discuss the far future you know the foreseeable future given the demographic and the social and the political changes that you just described the rise of the minority power the coalition of minorities so-called and where do you see those ties in x number of years
1: um i think the i you know I, i'm optimistic i feel that the ties are going to uh to remain close, I think that the uh, that the uh, uh, understanding of leadership in Israel, you know, it might be not across the board in the leadership in Israel, but in the the people that really matter is that uh, uh, Israel should uh, tread carefully when it comes to the relations with the United States. That uh, certain moves are are uh, are essential for the future of Israel and i think israel is so integrated in the region at this point you know with the abraham accords and with the uh, budding relationship with the saudis you know some of them are uh, more explicit than others and uh, the fact that there is the threat the real threat of iran uh, uh, and uh, and its proxies around the region that israel uh, isn't, israel doesn't have the privilege of of uh, of distancing the united states and uh, uh, you know going its own way israel needs the united states in uh, in a way that is uh, that is um, that matters, you know. That, that matters to its very survival. So I don't see Israel, and I and I think that the again the people that really matter in in Israel leadership completely uh, uh, understand that and understand the, how profound uh, the implications may be if Israel uh, uh, goes a different way. Uh, and on the American side, you know, I think you know I said earlier at the very beginning, I think that you know, I think there is you know, the common ground and the common ideas and the the uh, uh, that go way beyond you know just interests as policies, as we said earlier.
0: Well, Professor Sommer, you know this has been a pleasure. You you educated us and you enriched the discussion about U.S.-Israel ties tremendously. And I'd like to thank you for your time spending with us. I'm sure it's not the last interview. Uh, it is the first, but it's not the last. And I'd like to thank you.
1: You know, let me just say that it's always a pleasure to uh, talk to you and to be here. So thanks for inviting me.
0: Thank you for being with us and to our viewers and listeners. I'd like to say. We'll see you soon in our next episode of Tao Unbound. Stay tuned. This is Tao Unbound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat.